you ask me, um, how do I know that? Let's go through this right now. How do I know that? Whatever I'm going to say? Through prophecy. Does that mean I'm a prophet? Well, I actually have a certificate that says I'm a prophet because students decided to give me a certificate that says I'm a prophet. But that doesn't actually make me a prophet. No, the way this works is um, I read works written by people with various degrees of prophecy and try to understand them to the best of my ability and then explain them and convey them to you. So, um, if you have a question about, well, couldn't it be otherwise? And I answer, but well, it could be otherwise. But the, the pe- prophetic people told me it wasn't. So, mm-hmm. I'm going on women trusting them. If you have an argument with them, you can take it up with them. Uh, I don't like getting in between people. So that's in terms of the context. Now, this is a Hasidist class, um, which I'm assuming everybody knew that before they walked in, yes? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so you came here with the full knowledge that it was Hasidist. What is Hasidist? There's something on the schedule. She showed up because you're supposed to show up to everything on the schedule. Does anyone, like, you saw that no one's like, I wonder what this Hasidist thing is on the schedule. Or you know, and if you know, then, you know. Could be brave and volunteer. I've scared everybody into silence. I don't know how to define it. You don't know how to define it. But you know it when you see it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, a few things about Chassidus. The When Chassidus was first revealed, it was very controversial. Now, something can be controversial for one of two reasons. It can be controversial because it's foreign, it's alien, it's unfamiliar. Um, and if that's why it's controversial, what's the solution to that problem? Make it less foreign, alien, or unfamiliar. What? Make it less foreign, alien, and unfamiliar. How do you do that? No, no. Well. Spread it. You spread it, you make it more common, you make it... And eventually, you know, it used to be foreign becomes normal. It used to be alien becomes run-of-the-mill, right? Um, but then sometimes things are controversial because they're just inherently controversial. They're guaranteed to rub people the wrong way on some level. Which one is chassidus? Was it controversial because it was unfamiliar? Or was it controversial because it's just inherently controversial and it's guaranteed to rub people the wrong way? Both. Right. And time has solved the first problem, but does not solve the second problem. And what that means, though, is if you don't find Hasidus controversial, it doesn't rub you the wrong way, what does that mean about your understanding or appreciation of Hasidus? But if it's inherently controversial, if it's inherently supposed to rub people the wrong way, and doesn't rub you the wrong way, no, because even the Rebbe's Chassidus rubbed them the wrong way. Yeah, It means that your relationship with Chassidus is very superficial. It means you don't appreciate what really is. Because if you did appreciate it, it's like marriage. Right? Marriage sounds nice on paper. Assuming, who, depending on who's writing the paper. But assuming someone you know, makes it very flowery, and, you, know, you live together, and you build a family, right? Um, and then you have two people who are overtired with children, bills to pay like in actual real life, and that's a little more complicated, right? Um, one of the reasons why um, we encourage people to get married when they're young in Judaism, do you know why we do that? Because they're stupid enough to do it. 
they don't know what they're getting into. <laughs> now, that doesn't mean it's a bad <coughs> idea. It just means that sometimes something is much more complicated. There's a lot of um, mixed elements to it. It's not all, you know, roses and teddy bears. And if you have a full, clear sense of what you're getting into, it's not so easy to throw yourself into it. In fact, um, that's like being born, actually. Right? We all have a soul. The soul comes down into the world. That's what happens when we're born. Now, the soul comes down into the world because the soul thinks that the world is an amazing place. You know why the soul thinks the world is an amazing place? What's so great about this world? About this life that we live? I mean, other than the fact that, you know, we have things like, you know, newspapers and... You know, Facebook, but other than stuff like that, what else is great about this world that the soul is so excited about? It's able to reach a higher level in this world than it's in the world above. Mm-hmm. How does it do that? Through physics, through like uplifting the physical. Through uplifting the physical. So the soul is in heaven. It's just described how this you know, it gets this higher level through doing mitzvahs, and it's all very nice. You know what part it doesn't get informed about? The fact that you have um, an evil inclination, the fact that you have to make money, what it's like to be tired. You know, soul in heaven is never tired. It's never exhausted. It's never hungry. It's never in a bad mood. So it's very nice. Like You get this higher spiritual level, but you don't spell out all of the things that go along with being in this world, such as conflict, such as um, getting sick, such as worries about how you're going to pay your bills. And what happens when the soul, as on its way down, starts to slowly realize what it got itself into? <laughs> it's not happy. Um, and so chassidus is kind of like that, so I'm just giving you a heads up, is that um, it sounds all nice and good at first, and as you get deeper into it, you realize, wait a minute, that's not what I signed up for. So what is so controversial about chassidus? What is supposed to rub somebody the wrong way? Or, there's actually many elements, but... What is it about Chassidus that is supposed to always put a person on edge? And the more you get into it, and the more you know what it is, and the more you try and apply it to your life, the more tension there is in a certain respect. What does Chassidus have that no other aspect of Judaism has? And that aspect is that there are no limits, there are no boundaries on your relationship with God. Now, that sounds like a nice thing, right? There's no limits on your relationship. But what does it mean when you say there's no limits on something? Like, let's say, for instance, should there be limits on your marriage when you get married? Should we have a limited relationship? Yeah. Yeah. Well, so what, some, what are some of the limits that we would want in a marriage? Do you want to have to report where you are at all times to your husband? No, that, 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 like, if that's part of there's something wrong there, yeah? Mm-hmm. Um, how about you, should you have to share every thought that crosses your mind? Mm-hmm. It should be entitled some privacy of thought, right? Um, should, let's reverse this. Um, is your husband allowed to have friends that aren't your friends and hang out with them? See, so people need, like, boundaries on their relationships, right? If, if you drag the other person in a relationship, whether it's a marriage, a friendship, parents, children, into every aspect of each other's lives, you destroy the relationship. You actually destroy your life. We need privacy of thought. We need the opportunity to have space for ourselves. We need the space to have other relationships that don't necessarily involve this relationship. Now, if there's no boundaries, there's no limits on our relationship with God. So are we supposed to 
feel like we have to report to God every moment where we are? There's no boundaries, then God is entitled to know exactly where we are and what we're doing. Is God entitled to know what we're thinking? Yeah. Okay. So you know that, like, that thing you have like, a conversation with somebody, and they say something, and you want to say something, and then you think better of it because you realize that saying that would, like, not be, wouldn't necessarily be the most productive thing. Yeah. Better that they didn't know that you thought that thought, right? That's, like, part of the... Little children don't have that ability, and... <laughs> Fortunately, you know, they have parents and educators to help them navigate the world. Um, that's why little children will go up to people and say, you're fat. <laughs> my daughter does that to me. She does, she does it in Hebrew. She says, I cash my twos. Unfortunately, I find it funny, but it can really be very offensive to some people, right? But most people have the good sense of just not, like, letting every thought that occurs in their mind blurting out, right? Do you get that luxury with God? Mm. You thought it, you had that instinct. Well, as far as God's concerned, like on some level, that's already part of the relationship. Is that a lot of pressure? Now that you put it that way. Yeah. You know, like you like to prepare yourself, like before I come to class, like what I'm gonna say, I'm gonna present myself, right? Do you get that luxury of putting on your game face with God? No. And so, and just when you think you figured out how to navigate your relationship with God in whatever way, shape, or form, what does Chassidus try and emphasize and reveal? That you, that you, by doing that, you've limited the relationship and there's actually a deeper level. In other words, Chassidus demands deeper and deeper levels of vulnerability and openness to God. You never get to a point where that's enough, you got it good. Now, every human being has a tendency um, where they want to build themselves up. They want to turn themselves into something that they can be proud of. They want to be able to, whether at the end of the day, at the end of the week, at the end of their life, God forbid, to look back at themselves and say, that's a life well lived. I'm a, I'm a person that I can be proud of. I've done, I've accomplished, I have a certain character. Okay. Um, and that starts with very basic things. You know, like, can you meet your daily responsibilities of making sure you get yourself fed, right? Something little kids can't do. All the way to things like, can you be honest? Can you have integrity when it's inconvenient? Like, can you help people when it's beyond your comfort zone, right? And what we often do is we channel that drive, um, you know, to build a closer relationship with people. So, for instance, let's say somebody is a parent and they want to become a better parent. Often, what is the driving force behind that? Is they don't want to look at themselves and say, I'm a failure as a parent, I'm a lousy parent. They want to be able to say, no, I'm doing a good job as a parent. I want to be able to say that I'm proud of myself as a parent. Um, and then you move to the realm of Torah and mitzvahs, and how do we motivate ourselves to grow and to build? It's a similar way, right? To whatever degree that we find Torah and mitzvahs enhance that kind of person we want to see ourselves as and we work on incorporating them um, and every person that's different so, so there's some people that just means like they, they do a few Jewish things where some people need to become like insanely obsessive about all the nuances of halacha and some people means they want to become very scholarly whatever it is but there's this sense that the Torah and the mitzvahs are somehow adding another layer to this building to this construct that is my life so that I can be more of a whole person more of a somebody that that's life is a, is a successful accomplishment. 
Now, that drive is very deep inside every person. If you have that drive and you use that to try and build your Judaism, what role does God play in that picture? Now, if I'm trying to take Judaism in whatever sense it is, whether it's doing mitzvahs, it's studying Torah, it's having more lessons, spirituality, whatever it is with Judaism, and I'm trying to use that to enhance and to build this life of mine into something better, something more worthy, something more noble, something that I can look back on myself and I can feel proud of. Where does God feature into that? What, what role does God play in that mindset? Side part. Yeah, side part, right? God is an enabler. God is the source of the Torah and the mitzvahs, right? So, and we wanted to put this in a rather controversial way. Basically, you're using God for your own benefit, right? Now, there are a lot of relationships um, that if you look at them um, and you expose them for what they are at their core level, it's a little disturbing. So let's use the one I started with, which is a therapist. What is the relationship between the person who's going to the therapist and the therapist? By the way, this is different between the therapist and the person they're treating. That's slightly different. What's it? So the person going to the therapy, what's their relationship with the therapist? Why are they going there? They're paying them money for what? To listen to their problems. Hopefully help them with their problems, mm-hmm. right? Although <laughs> yeah. so some therapists might just become, I'll listen and then you keep coming and you yeah, keep having a problem and I keep taking money, okay? But let's assume that the therapist has a little more morals and integrity than that. They actually try and help whatever way they help, okay? Mm-hmm. Right. Despite my certificate, I have no training in this. I don't actually know what you're supposed to do, but okay. <laughs> um, and now, in a normal, like, regular relationship, um, generally the way it works is, like, I help you with your problems, and then what do you do? You help me. With you help me with my problems, right? And is that done in an, in, in an exchange way, like I keep a running tab? Like, <laughs> oh, you help me with, you know, five pro- problem units, so I owe you five problem units? Is that, that how, like, we build friendships and relationships with the normal? normal like, I mean, there are people that do that, and their lives are pretty messed up. But most of us, Right? Um, we freely give help to people we care about, um, and then through that we become closer to each other, and they freely give help to us, and we become closer, and it just builds. Right? And it's not, it's not being done this kind of transactional way, right? In fact, imagine like you call up your friend, and you have a problem, and you, uh, you help you with your problem, and at the end, you take out your credit card and you say, how much was that? <laughs> how do you think the friend is going to react? confused, right? (laughs) Because what what, what message are you sending the friend by the fact that you want to pay them (coughs) for their time? What? You're not really friends, right? I have have my own thing, and I'm using you to solve a problem. Like, I got a service from you, and now, like, goodbye. Okay? And in fact, sometimes the person, you know, in therapy, actually tries to develop a real relationship with the therapist, and then the therapist, for some reasons, I'm not a therapist, I don't know why these rules exist, but apparently they have good reasons for them, has to maintain what's called a professional distance. And so what do they do? Do they allow the person that they're helping help them back? No. Right. So, they're at, so the therapist is actively, for whatever reason, it's not relevant, 
making sure that this doesn't develop into a real relationship by basically, no, you cannot actually freely help me with my problems, but you can give me monetary compensation, which creates that kind of distance. And that's a very like, easy example, but it shows up in more subtle ways even between friends and family. For instance, many times, not often, you'll notice that our willingness to help other people is because when we want something from them, people that we care about, it's not that we never are willing to freely help, offer help, but many times we're more willing to freely offer our time and our ear and our heart and whatever else because we actually do need something from them. Now, we don't make it so blunt and say, like, I'll help you if you do this, right? But there is some subtle level of saying, like, I actually need something from you, and so this is kind of an investment to get something out of you. Um, how old does that? How old does that work in like building deep relationships, especially when the other person starts to notice that that's what's happening? Doesn't work very well, right? Um, you know, like little kids, certain kids. Little kids like, hey, mommy, I love you. Mm-hmm. Hey, what do you want? <laughs> now, does that mean that's always the case? Doesn't mean it's always the case. And the reason is because they're seeing ultimately the interaction, the relationship, the connection, and it's more subtle than the therapy example, as ultimately a means for something else that has nothing to do with the other person, has entirely to do with me. And the problem is, God is the ultimate provider. Like, that is the most basic notion of God in, in Judaism. God is the creator and provider, and whatever you need, turn to God for. So you need money, turn to God. You need stability in your life, turn to God. You need meaning, turn to God. You need security, turn to God. You need ethics, you need morals, you need, I don't know, you need a miracle, whatever it is, turn to God. So what does that turn God into in our minds? Someone who's there to help us with the things that we need. And if you took that out of the equation, you take that out of the picture, we often like just scramble like, well, what does it mean to connect to God outside of that? I had a, I had a student many years ago who was um, a recovering addict. Um, and his, <laughs> one of the major parts, ways that he got closer to God was through the 12 steps program. Now, I want to just make the point that I'm saying, I'm setting this up as a, as a foil, as a contrast. There's not an actual statement about 12 steps, about the recovery, it's about the limitations that he experienced and how that relates to our topic. Um, not only am I not a therapist, I'm not an addiction counselor, so I'm no, passing no judgment on what is the most effective way to deal with addiction. Um, but anyway, he had this very strong relationship with God, and but it was all kind of centered around that God was the the power, the strength, the 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 the, the one who helped him deal with his addiction and, you know, not use and, and grow and be healthy, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and there was, I don't know, let's say a year to a year and a half where all of our side discussions, you know, not in the class, kind of all centered around the fact, well, what would happen if magically one day you just were not an addict anymore? Like, you didn't have this problem. Like, you were like the non-addict people. Then what would it mean? Like, what would what place would God have in your life? Like, I agree, God is like very central. Like, one of the things that's true about dynamics like this is that the person standing here, generally speaking, although not always, tends to be more informed, more knowledgeable, more of the books, 
than the people sitting over here. And that's true also when you teach the men. But it's not true the person standing over here necessarily has a deeper sense of God. Now, this is a person I can say clearly had a much stronger sense of God in his daily life than I did, at least during that. I mean, like, rank us now where we are. I don't but at that point, I definitely felt that God was much more personally relevant to him. That's the sense I got from him than it was to me. But at the same time, there was this very limiting factor, which was, he had this, I have this problem. This problem can destroy my life. And the only one who can help me is God. So obviously God is really important. But what happens if the problem would go away? What happens if you didn't have a problem? Then what, what would be the basis of your connection? What would be the context for your relationship with God? So the first, like, when we first had this conversation, um, we were speaking past each other. Um, and after about a year and a half, he understood exactly what I was saying. Um, and it wasn't just like one day it shifted. And, but the truth is, that's just an example that was true for him. That's true for me. It's true for everybody. Because in the context that our core drive is to build this life that we feel comfortable with, we feel good with, we feel proud of, and God and the Torah and mitzvahs play a role in that, we still see that as a provider. Um, the, the terminology that Chassidim used to describe this is the desire for shlemus, the desire to be whole, the desire to be complete. That sounds like a good thing, right? Chassidus sees the desire for shlemus as evil, as negative, as a bad thing, as undermining our ability to have a real relationship with God. And the reason is because when we're desiring this shlemus, we're desiring to be whole, we're preoccupied with ourselves, and God has become the means for us to succeed in our endeavor of being our better self. You know, at the worst, God can be a, an ATM machine that you just take money out of. God can be a therapist. God can be, you know, the person that you have a relationship with because, you know, you, you need to live a healthy life so you have relationships with people. But God is in some sense being used for a project that really has nothing to do with God per se and everything to do with me. And that drive and that obsession, Chassidus sees as its enemy, as the thing that Chassidus sees as the ultimate problem that we have to deal with. And so you set up this thing, like the thing that gets everybody to grow in spirituality, grow in being a better Jew, to grow in Torah and mitzvahs, Chassidus is saying, oh no, that's the problem. See, it would be easy if what Chassidus is saying is that being selfish and being crass, um, being egotistical, those are bad things. And... Um, being sensitive, being loving, um, being humble, these are good things. That, that would be not, you know, it's hard. It's not controversial. So, to put this in other words, there was a, uh, a chassid who came to the second Chabad Rebbe, known as the Mittler Rebbe. Why was he called the Mittler Rebbe? Is anyone know who was called the Mittler Rebbe? Mitzvah in Yiddish means the middle Rebbe. So take a guess. Of the seven Chabad Rebbe's, which one was he? The second one. The second one. The second one. <laughs> Remember. Right, which is why he's called the middle. He's called the middle Rebbe by the third generation. Right? <laughs> the name just stuck. He was not called the middle Rebbe when he was the Rebbe, and he wasn't called the middle Rebbe because, like I said, well, there's seven, so I guess he's the fourth. No. Once there were three, so it was the old Rebbe, the middle Rebbe, and then the current Rebbe. But then there were more, so. But the name stuck. So... Um, we don't have a picture of him. What would be on the upper right there? Um, there's no picture, but uh, that's a 
cover of his book. What? Who called him that? His chassidim? No, his his son-in-law's chassidim. The third generation called him the Nifter Rebbe. They actually wanted to call him. They actually wanted to call him the previous Rebbe. Um, and when his son-in-law, uh, the third Rebbe, heard that, he was not happy with that. He said he's not previous. He's still relevant. So how come? So, what? How come we ended up doing that later on? I don't know. Yeah. I grew up saying we're the previous Rebbe, but the thing is, the Rebbe never referred to him as the previous Rebbe. And I know Chassidim that don't refer to him as the previous Rebbe. They refer to him as, um, as the, the, the Rebbe Rayat, which is an acronym for his name. But be that as it may, you know, the Rebbe Rayat, which is an acronym for his actual name. Anyway, so he had a Chassid, in many Chassidim, this second Rebbe, and the Rebbe. And this Chassid came to Yechidis. Now, Yechidis is an interesting thing. Um, it's a weird thing. Um, what's the... A, a lot of times people have problems and they want to get advice, yeah? So you go to an expert and get advice. is not really that. Yechidus was the idea that the chassid goes into the Rebbe um, and the Rebbe would see the Chassid for who the Chassid truly is and reflect that back to the Chassid. And therefore it's kind of like, it's, it's encountering your true self. And so it has kind of a value in its own right. It's true that that is obviously, you know, transformative. Um, but it, 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 it's, it's not, it's not, you know, getting advice is so that I can even fix a problem. Yechidus ultimately is that it's an encounter, you know, the, the, the Rebbe almost mirrors back your true self beyond the limitations you put on yourself. And that's why really Yechidus required a lot of preparation. But this often got filtered through whatever the issues were the person was holding. So this, this Chassid comes into Yechidus and the middle Rebbe asks him, how's uh, your relationship with God going? He didn't say that in English, it was in Yiddish, but we're going to paraphrase a little bit. He says, oh, it's fine, it's fine. Um, you know, nothing, you know, everything's good. Just, I, you know, I feel pretty, pretty satisfied with myself, but other than that, I don't see anything really seriously wrong. You know, things are going well, and I feel pretty satisfied. You know, children, things are going well. And so the Mithra Rebbe becomes very serious, and he says, I want to tell you a story. Way back a long time ago, there was the snake in the Garden of Eden. So there was a snake in the Garden of Eden? Mm-hmm. The snake in the Garden of Eden is the the essence of all evil. <coughs> and um, the snake was successful in getting Adam and Chava, Adam and Eve to sin. And um, that was bad. And then the snake comes back to God and says, well, I've got a problem now. Because now everybody knows knows me. They know listening to the snake is a bad idea. A PR problem. How am I supposed to really get people to listen to me if they see how much damage I've caused? And God says, well, this is not a problem. We'll just change your name. From now on, you'll be known as the angel of death. And the fear of death can motivate people to do very bad things. Right? Um, people hoard money because they're afraid of death. People steal because they're afraid of death. People will act violently to other people because they're afraid of death. Does that mean they always do? No. But it can be a very, very powerful motivating force to take someone who's supposedly ethical and moral and get them to do stuff that they really shouldn't do. And the angel of death, which is really the, which is really the snake, um, was pretty successful. And some very, very disturbing cultures developed in the world that kind of based on how do people cope with the fear of death involving all sorts of idolatrous practices and violence and very bad stuff. But then a man came along and his name was Avraham. And Avraham 
taught and preached that God runs the world and there's no reason to be afraid of death. And as that message sunk in, the idea that you would do things just because of fear of death became seen as a negative thing. And the the uh, angel of death is no longer so successful. So God comes back to God and says, I have a PR problem. <laughs> the jig is up. So God says, from now on, we'll change your name. We're going to call we're going to call you the Eight Sahara, the evil inclination, the desire to do things because they feel good. You know, so the inclination is I'm doing it not because it's good, not because it helps, just because it feels good. Yeah. Um, you know, just wanting hedonism. And that worked for a while. Um, until God <coughs> gave it the Torah. And the Torah outlines how bad it is to listen to the evil inclination and the reward for overcoming it and the punishment for it. The evil inclination comes now and says, well, everyone knows evil inclination is a bad thing. It's right the name, evil inclination, right? No one wants to listen to the evil inclination. I'm having a very hard time selling my wares. So, the, so God says, we'll change your name again. And now we will call you the animal soul. You know, people, they have animalistic needs. They have needs, right? And that worked until um, the Jewish ethicists, the Bali Musser, came around and they taught people that a person has to be a person. A person has to be proud of himself. A person couldn't just succumb to their most base desires because they have needs. You have to work on yourself. So now the animal soul comes back and says, I've got a problem. And so he says, okay, we'll change your name to arrogance. Like everyone wants to feel, feel like they're important. And um, that worked. So Chassidus came out and said, being obsessed with yourself is not such a good thing. And says, so now the, the snake, which is really the angel of death, which is really the evil inclination, which is really the animal soul, which is really our arrogance, now comes in the form of being satisfied with yourself. Being like, I'm doing good. And so then the Mitzlebis looked at him and says, you have a very big problem. If you're satisfied with yourself, if you think so, things are going well, You've succumbed to the source of all evil. Now, does it look in the most grotesque form? No. But, because evil's not about violence per se. It's not about, um, it's not about being crass or debased per se. What it's about is keeping God out. And keeping God out doesn't mean that God is, has to be kept out completely. There's room for God if God's gonna play by my rules. But that's the thing. God playing by my rules isn't God. God doesn't have limits. God doesn't have restrictions. And when someone says, yeah, there's room for God in my life on my schedule and on my terms, it doesn't matter what those terms are. Those terms could be the most loftiest, sublime, holy things. We're, we're basically telling God, I'm not interested in you for what you are. You as some sort of pure, infinite, absolute being. And what Chassidus constantly wants from a person is to somehow come to terms with this and decide, I would rather drop all the masks, drop all of the pretenses, drop this project of trying to perfect myself and have an open, honest relationship with God facing the fact that I'm limited and he's not. I'm mortal and he's immortal. I'm, I'm bound by time and space and he isn't. And to surrender myself over to him for who he is, wherever that leads. And that, no matter how much you do that, it can fall into a pattern. And then you're stuck again. And so 
Chassidish is always controversial because inside there's these two conflicting things. There's a desire to have a genuine, open relationship with God on the one hand, and the desire to become something that I can be proud of on the other hand, and those pull people in different directions. Chassidish, to, 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 to use the analogy of a person, again, even though people, we have limited relationships, One of the, one of the um, things that Chassidus emphasizes is that this kind of relationship we have with God has to play out in our relationships with people. Now, there, there's differences. With people, there are limits. Um, there's limits prescribed by halacha. Um, there's limits prescribed by that the you know people's you know ability to function, right? But there's a layer of us trying to adopt a role and adopt a a, a, a a position or have an identity when we relate to other people. Okay. So one of the things in the Hasidic culture um, is a let's put this in a in a in a negative light for a second, is a blatant disregard for the for rabbinic authority. Hasidim have a tendency to just blow off the rabbis. <laughs> In fact, this is one of the reasons why the Balshamta was controversial. Now, why, why would that kind of a culture develop? I'm not saying it's a good thing, right? You can have something that's good that leads to something negative, but why would that develop? Because, what? Well, in a normal Jewish community, a non-Hasidic community, there's a few things. For instance, you do not refer to the rabbi directly. Like in a, in a regular traditional Jewish community. So if you in English, you refer to the rabbi in third person. Um, in Hebrew, you'd use, you'd use the plural form. You never, you'd never say like, you to a rabbi. Um, a rabbi comes in, everyone stands, sits down. Um, uh, you know, uh, 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 there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of formality in terms of that's supposed to mediating how the people relate to the rabbi. Now, in contrast. One of my experiences in my youth is I was in 770. 770 is like a, it's like a sardine can of city. <laughs> so, and this was a transformative experience. And I say transformative doesn't mean that at the moment to transform me, but it was something that as I unpacked and revisited over and over, I found it to be very transformative. Um, I was in 770 and I was squished. This was um, one of my first times as an older person in 770. And um, I did not find the experience relatively pleasant, put it mildly. Um, and someone pointed out to me, look over there, I looked over there, and I saw this elderly rabbi, I didn't the rabbi, I actually knew who he was, um, and he was sitting on a bench, kind of crammed like this, with a little uh, booklet, sitters, trying to learn, and next to him was this like 15-year-old yeshiva bacher, and on this side was like a 15-year-old yeshiva bacher, and like, they could have just like gotten up and like stood somewhere in a cute hut space, but they're sitting, and he's sitting all squished together, and he like seems like nothing, doesn't seem anything wrong with that. Now, basic decency. This person happened to be the, the chief rabbi of Kfar Chabad. So, like, basic decency. Like, he's the chief rabbi of a city, and you're a 15-year-old. Like, <laughs> give him some space. Like, move. Like, find somewhere else to be. Now, I don't want to get into what the 15-year-olds were thinking. What was he thinking? Grateful. That's fine. In fact, grateful. Why? Deeper than that. Deeper than that. He doesn't feel his own status. Yeah. What What can't he do when he's the chief rabbi of Far Chabad in Far Chabad? 
Right. It, it, like, like, there's, now, there's this sense of, like, he's the rabbi, and he has a certain role to fill, and, and, and he, that carries over in his relationship with God, it carries over in his relationship with people, and there's a place for that. It's useful, but it's also a barrier. And now, as he's sitting squashed between two 15-year-olds, right, he and them, they're just Jews connecting to their creator, nothing more. And that's the idea of the Hasidic gathering, Hasidic for banging. And that's why Hasidim would often travel for a very long time to come to a place where, where they're with all the other Hasidim. What ended up happening from that is, okay, so the rabbi's not standing on his dignity, he's not insisting when stands up because he doesn't want that to become a barrier. And then people who just you know, don't necessarily have the most respect for rabbi to begin with. Um, so in, in many Jewish communities, like it's unheard of to refer to the rabbi by their first name when speaking about them in the Hasidic communities. It's like run of the mill. And this idea that we're not standing on ceremony, the idea that, that every single person is working very hard not to build up a persona in their own mind of who they are, then they use that to mediate their relationship with other people in the relationship with God, that's a very challenging thing because you do need some amount of rules to like how society work. And we're not saying you should totally destroy that, right? There's still the, you know, what people need in order to have healthy functioning, and there's halacha. But at the same time, those things like status and success are now seen to be obstacles. You know, as, as someone once put it to me when I was younger, was that a chassid learns to be embarrassed by the thing that other people are proud of. A person works hard to work on a character trait, to be nicer, let's say. And they work really hard. And they succeed and they become a nicer person. How do they feel? They usually feel proud of themselves, right? How does a chassid feel? Embarrassed that his whole working on his character, becoming a nicer person, is all about him and his wanting to be... And that there's all of this, that every time they're working on being nice, what are they preoccupied with? How nice of a person I am, instead of just like being nice with a person. Generally just, there's a Hebrew word, zorem, to flow, just to let it be. And there's a big question, how do you do this? It's kind of like lifting yourself up by the ears. If you try and lift yourself up by the ears, you can't do it because the thing supporting your arms is yourself, right? If you're trying to work on yourself so that you can be less into yourself, what's the problem? Still about yourself. And that is why the more Chassidus becomes about having this ultimate vulnerable relationship with God and, and not so much about just nice inspiring things it becomes more and more personally difficult more and more personally controversial how do you do that if i put an effort then it becomes about me if i don't put an effort then nothing's going to happen if i work on making myself more vulnerable then isn't that me just trying to like create a new persona a vulnerable persona you know some people do this um some people have a way of um being very into themselves by not being into themselves. So, some people, their persona is, I'm the one that listens to everybody. I don't interrupt everybody. I hear what everyone's saying. And what's underneath and motivating that is the sense of wanting to have this firm, stable sense of who I am, what's my place, and what do I contribute. So, I saw an essay someone wrote for something, and they wrote... Um, I'm the person that always helps the conversation get started. I mean, it's good to have people like that, but like, if you're walking around with that in your head, like, it's like you come to, I mean, just imagine, you come to a place, you come to a classroom, you come to a bunch of people sitting around, right? 
And instead of like you genuinely, genuinely looking at the other people and seeing them and then expecting them to see you, you're like, okay, I'm the conversation starter. And now you're gonna play a role. And like, yeah. you see this like in kids in school, like this one's the class clown and this one's for this and this one's for that. And we do that as adults too. We do it in our marriages, we do it in our parenting, we do it in our friendships and we do it with God. And then when we try not to do it, what subtly happens, you just replace one identity, one persona with another. Right, and so this becomes the question with how does Hasidus get around this problem? Okay, and we have 45 minutes left for me to tell you. You have a question? Well, I would just, I mean, now that you just said that, it kind of asked the question, but I was just going to ask, like, how what you were talking about fits in with the hierarchy that exists within Judaism, like, like Levim and Kohanim, you know, if they do fulfill... A, a purpose that another Jew can't because of a certain connection to Hashem. So, even though it's still about their connection, mm-hmm. their personal connection to Hashem, they're still doing it on behalf of the whole. Right. Okay. Um, so the answer to that, the answer to that, um, is that Chassidus, um, one of the ideas of Chassidus, I'm not going to elaborate too much on, is that difference does not imply hierarchy. Okay. And so... Um, and the example that you can use is say, which would you rather lose, your eyes or your ears? Or would you rather lose neither? Because there's not a clear hierarchy. Like, right. like, like it's not, you don't think about it that way, right? You're like, I mean, sure. the eyes are good for certain things, the ears are good for other things. I like having both, I mean, and they complement each other. I'm, sure. right? I wouldn't put them in like a strict hierarchy. <laughs> like saying, well, this one's expendable as long as I keep that one. And so what Chassidus often will try and do is say every distinction in Judaism which might be classically understood as a hierarchy is really just complementary. And like working as a part of a greater Right, world. right. So that's why the Baal Shem Tov, you know, wanted everyone to appreciate the simple Jews who, who, you know, didn't know which way to hold the sitter are contributing something that the scholars aren't able to contribute mm-hmm. and vice versa. So rather than it being a hierarchy, it's, it's, it's a synthesis. Okay. <coughs> but that's, that, that's a broad topic in Chassidus because you do have to address that. We're not all supposed to be just like our own little individual things. Okay. All right. So that's one controversial thing. Here's another controversial thing. Um, in Judaism, there are people who have kind of central roles. Okay? I'm going to list a few. The rabbi. What is the role of the rabbi? Anyone know? Advisor. To teach. To teach well, primarily the role of a rabbi is actually to issue halachic rulings. Mm-hmm. The, the term has kind of gotten molded. So in the old days, when you say someone was the rabbi of the town, they didn't give inspiring talks. It's like if you want to know if the chicken was kosher, you went to the rabbi. <laughs> if you want to know if the mikvah was kosher, you went to the rabbi. Then you had something that in the old country used to be called the magid, or the preacher. What was their job? Inspire. To inspire, right? So like what I'm doing now would be called more magidus. I'm you know inspiring. I'm not like telling you like this is kosher, this is not kosher. Um, you have, you know, miracle workers. What is their job? Well, it's kind of in the description. Performing miracles. Performing miracles, right? Um, and we've had them, you know, sometimes, some errors we have more, and some errors we have less, right? So we have prophets. What are prophets good for? Prophesizing. Yeah, if you want to know something that God hasn't, you know, put in the Torah, so like, should we go to war? You ask the prophet. Where are my father's lost donkeys? <laughs> I'm not kidding. That's actually what happened. <laughs> you heard of Shaul, the first king? How did he? How did he end up meeting Shmuel, the prophet? 
He was looking for his father's lost donkeys, and he heard the prophet of God was in town. Well, that sounds like a good person to ask, right? What do you do when your lost donkeys? You go to the prophet of God, right? Okay. So you've got prophets, you've got miracle workers, um, you have a magid, um, you have people that counsel people, right? You have all these different roles, right? In Judaism. Um, what's the role of the Hasidic Rebbe? I mean, they might, but not always. Like, for instance, the Rebbe said very clearly that as a general rule, he avoids being a rabbi in the halachic sense, only if he feels it's absolutely necessary, he prefers to send the issues to other people. So, like, if you were to ask the Rebbe a halachic question, um, it's very rare that the Rebbe would ever respond. He would generally refer you to some other halachic authority. Why was that? He felt that that wasn't just what he needed to be spending his time doing. There are other people who are doing it, and, uh, you know, when you do one thing, it comes at the expense of something else. Only when he felt the rabbis were not dealing with a particular issue. Um, like, I don't know, an example is the halachic permissibility of prostate surgery. It's a big issue in the 1950s. And the rabbis were kind of like not touching on the topic, so they never brought that up. Weird things like that. Okay. Uh, but then you have Hasidic rabbis who are halachic authorities. So the altar, but the first Chabad rabbi, he was halachic authority. So that, that may or may not be the case. Some Hasidic rabbis do a lot of miracles, some don't. Some like, want to be very prophetic and openly reveal prophecies, some don't. I mean, they, they, they could all those things, but that's not what it is. What is the role of Hasidic rabbi? So, I'll give you a hint. I already alluded to it earlier. See if anyone's paying attention. See if people are paying attention in class. Paying attention, not to knowing the answer, not directly correlated. I know. Well, it's a combination of paying attention and then, you know, making an educated guess. Yeah. To bring you closer to Hashem. To bring you closer to Hashem. Now, I want to be very clear. Bringing you closer to Hashem does not mean other things. It doesn't mean tell you how to do mitzvahs. Although, if you're closer to Hashem, you might do, you probably will do more mitzvahs. It doesn't mean, like, solve your problems. Although, if you're closer to Hashem, your problems will probably get solved. But the ultimate thing is, how do you get the person to be closer to Hashem? Or to put it in a more Hasidic way, how do you get the person to have a connection with Hashem that is for Hashem on Hashem's terms and not using Hashem for my own personal shlemus, my own personal project? In other words, you can't lift yourself up by your own ears, right? Can someone else lift you up by your ears? Yeah. yeah. So then what's the idea of a rabbi? That you can't, you, can't build, you can't build your way out of this problem. You can't think your way out of this problem. You can't, you can't, the minute you try and just really say, oh, this way of being isn't good, now I'm going to try to be another way of being, you turn that into a whole persona, into a whole identity, into a whole label. So then what do you need? Someone else to pull you out of it. Someone else to, um, analogy is often used, someone else to kindle the flame that you don't have. And then when it's there, when that, when that, when, when there's this sense, when there's this experience of having a relationship with God, which is not a means to something else. It's not for building up something else. And it, therefore it's not limited by anything. Once I've experienced that, now it's a question of just how is that maintained? And so, this is why the idea of a Hasidic Rebbe is very controversial, because all of a sudden you're saying, here's this other person, and I'm not going to them because they know more halacha than me. They know more Jewish law. I'm not going to them because they're a prophet. I'm not going to them because they're smarter than me, they're wiser than me. 
Why am I going to them? Because they're closer to God than me? Like, that sounds a little bit disturbing, right? Like, aren't we all supposed to have our own direct relationship with God? Right. And that's why, although in Judaism there's no problem with prophets, there's no problem with miracle workers, the idea of Hasidic Rebbe is when it came around was, still, was controversial, and still many people find it controversial, because the Hasidic Rebbe is not there to use their wisdom, their prophecy, their guidance for something, but is actually meant to be, in some sense, a bridge to a more authentic relationship with God. And how does that work? How, does, how can I have a direct relationship with God if at the same time I'm going to this other person? Yeah? In other words, what you're going, you're, in other words, it's not that. The idea is that, that, um, it's like, for instance, what I'm teaching you now is written in books, right? For argument's sake, let's say all those books are in Hebrew, and for argument's sake, let's say none of you speak or read Hebrew. Okay. It's not really true, some of the stuff is in English, and some of you may know some Hebrew to whatever degree. But let's say, for argument's sake. Well, that means I'm like a gatekeeper. Right? You have no access to the stuff in the books, and therefore I am the one that goes through, and therefore it has to go through my processing. Right? I read the books, I understand the books, and then I give you what I think the books are saying in a way that I think you can understand. So you don't have any direct access to what's in the books. Is that a good way to learn stuff? No. So if you want to take your Judaism seriously, what should you set as a goal for yourself? In Hebrew? That's right. And what kind of Hebrew? The Hebrew that allows you to buy stuff in the Shuk, or the Hebrew that allows you to learn Chumash with Rashi? It's not no, the same Hebrew. Out. It's not the same Hebrew. That's why there's, that's why, you know like there's like translations in English? Do you know Israelis have translations in Hebrew? Yeah. Do you want to know what that's, you remember, anyone here remember learning Shakespeare in school? <coughs> in English. Did you understand it all? Right, no. Different English, right? Kind of like roughly, but sometimes the words have the exact opposite meaning. <laughs> there's an art scroll, Gemara, translated in modern Hebrew. There's a Siddur with a modern Hebrew translation. Because, yeah, just because you speak a lot of Hebrew doesn't mean you know the Hebrew that of, you know, the Tanakh and the Hebrew of the medieval commentators and the Hebrew of Hasidus. It's a different Hebrew. Anyway, so yeah, you want to be able to have that kind of act. That's not that what we're talking about. Um, it's more like, it's more like, um, when you have a mentor, now you can have a mentor because you just lack a certain skill. You don't know how to. You don't know how to do calculus, so you have a mentor that mentors you in calculus or something. But that's really more of a tutor. I mean, mentor in the sense of you're struggling like on a fundamental life level, and you have a mentor. One of the key things that the mentor provides is they don't see you the way you currently are. They see you in a deeper way. You could say they see the way you could be. But even that's a little superficial. Don't they see the way you could be? They see that what you are right now is more than you think, and therefore you could be more than what you actually are. They see this deeper self. And when they see that, it's all about seeing. It's all about how they see you. If they see you that way, what does that do to you? Does that not what? What? Gives you like a hope. Right. Gives you, you a change. Everything. Right. Did they have to necessarily say anything? 
In fact, you can like take verbatim what the, what the mentor sees and repeat it, but if you don't see that person, you can't mentor them. So, what what it is is that this person this person sees you in as the way you are having this unfiltered, completely vulnerable, completely open relationship with God. They see you that way, and not see that you could be that way in the future. They see that on some level. There's a part of you that's already connected to that. And they see that that's really who you are. And if you, you, know, you are seen that way, and you feel that you're seen that way, that takes you out of it. It changes your whole experience of yourself. And that's why, for instance, the first Hasidic Rebbe, was the first Hasidic Rebbe, anyone know? No, it was not the first Hasidic Rebbe. I mean, you know, I'm all Chabad, 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 but the Baal Shem Tov. What did the Baal Shem Tov do for most people? <laughs> He saw them. He walked around and he talked to them. He smiled at them. He sang a song with them. He gave them a hug. He just interacted with them. And what did they walk away from that experience? This sense that they have this ability or this part of themselves that has this connection to God that isn't filtered, it isn't limited, it's not part of being a persona. In fact, you know who he had an easier time with? The simpler people. People didn't have such a well-developed persona. Who did Baal Shem have a hard time with? Learned. The learned people, the scholars, the rabbinic establishment. Like, that was a whole thing to get to, because, you know, it's like if you're mentoring somebody, you can see them that way, but getting them to feel that you see them that way, that's a, that's a challenge. And the more they're entrenched in it, the harder it is. Um, in fact, the, there's an there's a interesting story that helps illustrate this. Um, does anyone know who succeeded the Baal Shem Tov as the leader of the Hasidic movement? The Magid of Mizrich. What was the Magid's job? To inspire. To inspire. That's called the Magid. Do you know what the Alter was called, the founder of Chabad, during his lifetime? The Magid of the Alter, the founder of Chabad. Do you know what he was called during his lifetime? The Magid of Liazhna. Because what was his official job? To give inspiring talks in the city of Liazhna. So, anyway. So the Magid, who's a very big Torah scholar, yeah. So why is the Magid of Mizrach named the Magid of Mizrach? Because, uh, um, I mean, that's, that's what he was known. The Chassidim, when, when the, in Chabad, when, when the Alter Rebbe passed on and he was succeeded, so he's referred to as the Old Rebbe. Yeah, I don't know if there's any, I mean, there probably is some deep mystical thing, but I don't know. I've never heard. The, so the Magid of Mizrach, was actually a big opponent of the Baal Shem Tov. Uh, he he uh, thought the Baal Shem Tov was a destructive force to Judaism. Um, and he traveled to the Baal Shem Tov primarily not to be his student, but to check him out, to challenge him. Now, Imagine that. Imagine you've got somebody, you know, a mentor, who wants to mentor somebody who like, has real problems in their life. And the person who has problems in their life, instead of seeing this mentor as a mentor or something, their whole attitude is, I, my job is to show the mentor they don't know what they're talking about. That's going to that's gonna be quite, quite challenging for the mentor, right? If, if, if you've got this, 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 this kid and their whole attitude to everything the mentor says is try and figure out how the mentor is a hypocrite, how the mentor is not re- honest. 
then the fact that the mentor generally sees the good in this kid is going to be a very hard time coming through. And that's a kind of a model for how, like, the Balshemtos, their own successors, initial attitude towards him was. Um, so how did the Balshemtos get around this? Well, um, how do you get through to somebody if they're not open to you? You know, like, have you ever tried to have a conversation with somebody and they're really not open? Mm-hmm. Well, then you didn't get through to them. You just give up, right? We give up. Give up. But what if you? What, what if giving up is not an option? So what do you do? Get through to them through somebody else, or something else. Call them. Can you please listen to me? Okay, and that doesn't work. Listen. That works. Now, it doesn't always have to be in that particular form. You can do a hard reset. In other words, you can jolt somebody out of their patterns. And if you do that in the right way, they can be, hear things that they otherwise wouldn't hear before. Now, that can be very unpleasant and very, you know, and us can be done wrongly, right? You could do it in such a way and it's completely ineffective. But there is this notion that you can expose somebody to something that they can't handle. And as they're kind of like scrambling to put themselves back together, there's a place at which they're more open, they're more vulnerable, and you can get through to them. Okay? Now, does that always mean that the proper way of doing that is yelling at them and slamming on the table? No. Although, you want to hear a quick story about that? Yeah. There was a, um, there was a, in, in the 60s and 70s, there were a lot of kids from, a lot of people getting into cults in the United States, I mean, relatively speaking to what was before. It was a, it was a phenomenon. Um, and there was a, a decent number of kids from Jewish families, not necessarily religious families, but people who are traditional, whatever. And so there was one person, um, they were like, you know, affiliated, I don't know, maybe gone to the conservative synagogue, whatever, and their kid like went off to college and joined some sort of like far out cult. And he was like zombie and like, and the parents got really freaked out and eventually they somehow got involved with some shliach and the shliach told them to write to the rabbi. And the Rebbe said that this uh, kid in the cult is, should go speak to this old chassid. Now this old chassid didn't speak English. This old chassid like, like, was from Russia. No, like didn't know what a cult was. <laughs> like, just like, trying, like, what, what, like, how's he supposed to, like, it's not a deep, like, what are you supposed to do? And um, anyway, the Rebbe said, so he does, and he convinces the parents to take the kid to go meet and the, the kid sits down and he's got this like dazed look in his eyes like he's like connected to some big thing um and um Chassid sits down and like looks to the this shliach well, he's like what am I supposed to do like I don't what, 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 what do you want me to do he says he's, he tries to explain he's in a cult and we want to like deprogram him and like he's trying to explain to him this old Chassid in Yiddish like what a cult is and deprogramming and the Chassid is like look I have no idea what you're talking about like I've never encountered this before up some shtetl in the Ukraine. What do you want from me? <laughs> and so eventually, in exasperation, the shlech says, it's like, it's like idolatry. And the chassid freaks out. There's <laughs> a Jewish kid serving idols. He just he starts screaming and ranting. And, like, he's never heard of such a thing. <laughs> and this kid, like, the, the shock of seeing this old man, like, lose it, like, breaks him out of it. And then he had yeah, therapy and the whole thing, but that was the thing that, like, took him out of that, like, zombie <laughs> mode. Now, does that mean every single person you start screaming? That's not the way to do it. But there's this idea that a person encounters something that's beyond what they can exp- process that makes them more receptive. So that's what the Baal Shem Tov did to the Magid. Because 
you can't, you can't show somebody how you really see them when they're resistant to it. It's not like they have a special like sledgehammer to like get you to see it. They have to. So what did the Baal Shem Tov do? The the uh, Magid of Mizrach was known to be a Kabbalist. Um, I say known to be a Kabbalist. You see why in a second. Um, doesn't mean he actually was. And uh, so he uh, the Baal Shem Tov took out a work of Kabbalah um, and asked the Magid to you know explain this section. He opened up a book, opened up a page, and said, "Can you explain this section?" And the Magid read it and explained it. And the Baal Shem Tov says, that's not what's written there. And the Magid says, what do you mean? So try it again. And so the Magid reads and explains. And the, uh, and the, the, the Baal Shem Tov says, that's not what's written there. So the Magid is a little bit annoyed. Like, who does this guy think he is? Like, I know what I'm talking about. I'm a scholarly man. I've studied Kabbalah. That's what it says. That's the explanation. Like, so he turns the book around and says, Baal Shem okay, you do it then. Like, what are you trying to show? So Baal Shem Tov reads it and explains it and says exactly the same thing that the Magid says. But the Magid said, when he told the story, he says, when the Baal Shem Tov said the words, everything being described, I experienced. When described the angels, I saw the angels. When he described the spheros, the godly attributes, I saw the godly attributes. He took me to all the places described in the book. That's what a real capitalist is. Not someone who like to explain ideas with other ideas. And that was so jarring for him that what the Magid understood as like concepts to explain, the Baal Shem Tov was just able to navigate like you going to the store to go buy some milk. You just go there. And when the Magid encountered that, he realized like this, we're not, we're not, we're not on the same plane. We're not dealing with the same issues. We're not having the same perspective. And then the Magid became receptive. And eventually that transformation was so great that he, the, the Baal Shem Tov appointed him as his successor. In a sense, every Hasidic Rebbe and each one in their own way sees it as their job to do that to a person, to take them out of whatever shell they've built for themselves and then see them for who they really are. As someone who can have this unfiltered, unrestricted relationship with God. Now, so what does that mean that it is demands from the person, from us, from people who are not just What are we supposed to go do? Kindle it and work on it. Yeah, but you need to have it first. So you need to go up, you need to go find a rabbit. And then what are we supposed to do? If you're receptive, they can just look at you. Just 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 see you in this way and that'll affect you. Right? And then you can hold on to that somehow, and if it loses, you go back. And if you're not receptive to it, they might need to do a little bit of a softening you up. Yeah. Can you be a chassid on your own? No. no, it doesn't really work. So class dismissed, everyone go find it. <laughs> um, so this was very controversial because this means that you know, I mean, theoretically, I guess you could have you could have this happen to you once, and it could be sufficient for the rest of your life. But that tends to be only very, very deep people. Most people, this is something. It's like, um, I mean, think about like going the mentoring example. Yeah, how many people have does the mentor just look at them once, and then they don't need any more mentoring? Their life has been totally turned around because of that one look that they received. It's pretty rare, right? Usually, it needs to be like an all that that look needs to be inculcated and developed and maintained and like. And so this idea of this relationship centering around getting that look, getting, being, being seen that way, maintaining that, 
and it developed this whole new culture, this whole new lifestyle. And that started to look very different than, you know, just going to rabbi with a question. Um, you ever, have you ever heard of a tish? Mm-hmm. <coughs> Do you know what a tish is for? Okay. Sometimes, depending on the particular thing, right? But shirayim, shirayim is the, the, the there's an idea um, that eating the leftover food from a tzaddik. Um, it's based on the idea that in the sat temple, the kohen would sac- would offer the sacrifice and eat from the sacrifice, and then the owners would also get sometimes eat from the sacrifice. So that spiritual idea can also play out with the tzaddik, not in the full sense of the temple, but it's a but like you have all the I mean, you see a picture of a tish, you got all these people standing around and gazing down at this Rebbe and like and so you think like, well, the Rebbe's gonna say like these very profound ideas, but in a lot of a lot of uh communities the Rebbe doesn't say much of anything at fish. And if he does, it's very hard to hear him and most people don't understand it anyway. So what's the point of a tish? Why would all these people gather around tish is Yiddish for a table, gather around this table to watch the Tzadi eat, you know, Shalashudas? Especially if they're not going to understand what he says, if he decides to say anything wrong. Many Hasidic rabbis don't say anything, or they say something that's intentionally very cryptic. The idea is, you want the tzaddik to look at you, and you want to feel that you're being looked at. And then what happens? You see yourself differently. That's the point. Of course, there's a tiny bit of a problem, which is you have to have <laughs> you have to have somebody that really is like that. You can't just like take any yoko like me and sit him in front of a table and like expect that to work. But the other thing is. You have to, the other thing is, um, you know, it's not a magic trick, right? Just like the mentoring thing, like it it, it has to, it has to cultivate with a, some kind of relationship, some kind of sensitivity. And so, you know, I live in a, in a town where um, there's a lot of chassidim, non chabad chassidim, and so on Yamtif on the holidays, like Rosh Hashanah, Shavuos, um, um, it's like empty. Where is everybody? Most of the Hasidic people, they go spend their yamtif, they spend the holiday by the Rebbe. And you think, what are they doing there? They're going to get to be by the Tish, and they're going to stand there in these bleachers and watch, and hopefully they're expecting to get seen, and that's supposed to have some effect on And that goes all the way back to the Bashemtuf. Bashemtuf would just have a big table, and every yukul and every shmukul would sit around the table, and the Bashemtuf was trying to get them to feel. Um, so that's what I want to get at. So that's, up till now, we've just spoken about Chassidus, and I did not in any way mention Chabad. Okay. But we are now going to move, actually, to what, in what sense Chabad, like, what Chabad does with that. The Alter, the first part of Rebbe, what did he take with Chassidus, and how did he um, mold it, how did he shape it? Yeah. How are we able to limit, though, that connection that we're able to get like, to Hashem to one person? That, not to a person, but to a Rebbe, that you're limiting... If someone isn't able to see the Rebbe, then they're not able to have that connection to Hashem. So that's one of the issues that the Alter Rebbe had with this, is that, um, you know, it, 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 it requires everyone to go to the Tzadik, requires everyone to go to the Rebbe. Um, and that's not always available to everybody. That's one issue. There's another issue. And the issue is like this. On some level, mm. 
you're circumventing the problem. You're not dealing with the problem, right? What's the problem? The problem is that we all have this desire for strength. We all have this desire to be holy. We all have this desire to build ourselves into something. And we use God in our Judaism as a means to that. And so what's happening is you're going and having this other experience. That experience is powerful enough, is intense enough, is vivid enough, that allows you to kind of like sideline for some period of time this other part of yourself. But you're circumventing. You're not really addressing the problem. Um, and in fact, many Hasidic rabbis, not Chabad, took the view, well, well, well that, that, that's the only way to deal with the problem. Because if you address the problem, then you're going like, to be backing yourself. If, you, if, we let, if we let the Hasid try and like, actually work on the problem, that was the whole problem, right? So we want to make sure that he's not working on the problem. You're not doing anything. It's, 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 it's you're, being, you're being uplifted. You're being elevated. You're, you're, you're not taking full responsibility because if you do, you'll fall back into the same trap that we started with. But that does mean that that, that part of ourselves is kind of not being addressed. A good way of thinking about it, using a physical analogy, um, we use water to clean. Now, one of the ways we use water to clean um, is we just dilute stuff. Um, it's not nice to think about this, um, but in your water, there's all sorts of stuff there, right? Now, if, if, if you put more water in, then the other stuff is less noticeable. Put enough water in, you get to the point you can't tell the difference, right? But how would, how would you tell whether your water has impurities in it or things in it versus not? How do you know if you have like pure water or water with stuff in it? What? So if, it's di- if, 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 you, if you dilute the water and the other stuff in it enough, right? I'm not talking about the chemical test. I'm talking like in our ex- like actual experience. If you dilute the water enough, you get to the point you can't taste the stuff in it. You can't, but let's use the example of um, sediments. If you have sediments in the water, very simple. You take pure water, like pure H2O, you put it in a, in a hot water boiler that's perfectly clean, and you boil it out. You can boil as much water as you want. Will it ever develop that, uh, what's it called in English? The yeah, that residue, what's it called? Uh, oh. In Hebrew it's called that, I forgot what it's called in English. Now. <laughs> that silt, yeah. yeah that, those, those calcium deposits, yeah, it, won't, it won't develop it because it wasn't in there. But you know what, if you use regular water, it develops it, right? So what happens is, if you remove the water, you uncover that it was always there all along. And so, in a similar sense, as long as that experience, that residue of what it was like to be seen that way exists, like, the fact that we're preoccupied with ourselves is kind of like being sidelined. But as that experience starts to fade, what do we discover? We're just as obsessed with ourselves as we always were. It hasn't really changed. And so for those two reasons, among others, the Alcatraba felt there's something missing in this whole system. It's not enough to simply have somebody see you this deeper way and that affect you. Because A, what if you can't see them? And B, then it depends on how powerful and how long that experience lasts. And as it begins to fade, you realize that you haven't really solved the problem. So the Alcatraba said is like this. I'm going to use the bank what's called a Trojan horse. You didn't say a Trojan horse. You know what a Trojan horse is? The story of yeah, is that they wanted to they wanted to sack the city of Troy, but they couldn't get in, so they left a gift in the form of a wooden horse and there were really soldiers inside. Okay. Well here's the thing. 
What do what do people that are working on themselves really like? Yeah, if you if you want to work on yourself, what do you really like? Accomplishment. Accomplishment. Yeah. Reward. What helps you accomplish? Reward. Goals. Yeah. An outline system, right? right? So, if you can, yeah, things. So if you can set a series of goals and set a whole system, then me working on myself, I can be really, really into that, right? Mm-hmm. But what if that is actually just a Trojan horse? And the more I start working on that system unbeknownst to me, it slowly gets cultivating this other sense inside of me. And over time, the idea that there's this system that I'm working on starts to seem less and less real, and this other sense I discover has kind of been building in the background all along. And if you want a physical analogy for this, think about a seed, a grain, like wheat. When the wheat grows, on the outside you see the chaff. But what's growing inside the chaff is the grain. And eventually the chaff the grain grows and it's strong enough and it's healthy enough and the chaff starts to break apart and then you say, oh, hey, there's, there's grain in here. I don't need the chaff. You can get rid of the chaff and there's the grain. And so the Alter Rebbe has this brilliant idea, which is, what if I can package this sense of being seen in this way? Being seen as just you standing vulnerable in front of God that it's not about you becoming something or you fitting a certain persona, but you giving yourself over to God on his terms. What if I can package that sense in a program of self-refinement and self-help that if you work on, you think you're going to achieve something, but slowly this other sense is being cultivated in the background. And eventually that sense becomes so powerful and so nagging, you, 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 don't, you, don't, you don't need to be pulled out of, you don't need to be pulled up to it. You kind of like tear off what's on so, outside and it comes out. And that's a very different model. And so the idea in Chabad was, how do you get the person, without even necessarily at the first realizing it, or the part of themselves that's resistant to it, to fully ingest the thing that's going to undermine itself? How do you get the person's desire for, um, for perfection, for being whole, for being complete, to willingly absorb the thing that's going to undermine it. Well, you have to package it differently. So, Chassidus is presented as, here's the solution to this, and here's how you work on this, and here's how like this. In Chabad, there's a whole systematization of Chassidus. There's a whole map, let's map out the soul, and the animal soul, and the godly soul, and what's the role of this, and what's the role of that. Let's understand it, and let's implement it, and let's make it. And you know what happens? When it's all presented at the beginning, it sounds like this is great like system, and you're going to work it, and you're going to you know work the uh, that 12 steps, whatever it is. You know. 53 steps of the time, or whatever it is. And, and you're going to succeed in becoming a Bainani, or whatever it is. But you know what ends up happening? As you really work on it? First, you think, like, I'm going to succeed at this. Then you start to feel like you're not doing it right. Because you're not succeeding, so you must be doing something wrong. And then, eventually start to realize, well, maybe the thing that I was trying to achieve is not really worth trying to achieve. And you discover there's this other thing that actually really matters which is being just direct and open and given over to God. And that is built in a very slow and subtle way, in a way that you don't realize it's happening until years later, sometimes months, but usually years later, you turn around and say, wait a minute, the thing that I thought I was trying to achieve was never achieved, and this other thing has happened to me along the way. And what that means, there's a little bit of a bait and switch going on here, right? Um, have you ever noticed 
that um, Chassidim, when they talk about Chassidus, they present it as if it has all the solutions to all the problems. You ever notice that kind of tone? Oh, whatever your problem is, Chassidus has the solution. Right? So is it true or is it false? Is that, that, does Chassidus have all the solutions to all your problems? Like, I don't know, let's say you have, a, like, a, you have a bad relationship with your sister. Is Chassidus the solution to your problem? It'll make you realize that it's not. So the answer is yes, but no. It's kind of like maybe that like, you have the solution to all your problems right if you would just be, have this kind of relationship with God you wouldn't have the problem you have with your sister or whatever the thing is now again it doesn't solve like problems like a broken leg that's all I'm saying right but the thing is it's not like like so where's the thing where's the like the five step thing in navigating my relationship with sister that's not there um and so there's this there's this there's this kind of ongoing frustration because for the Hasidists to work you have to be kind of pursuing one thing and then you end up getting something else. You're pursuing trying to become a better person, a holier person, a more devout person, a nicer person, a more sensitive person through the Hasidic model. But then what ends up happening is that you don't necessarily become that. You just start to have the sense that it's not about me becoming anything at all. And as that sense becomes more and more relevant and you're more open to that, you're more accepting of that, then the problems that come from whatever other things become more manageable. And that means Hasidus is this ongoing, no matter what level you're on, there's these oh, there's these things like, I want to become something. Hasidus is telling me I shouldn't become something. Then I try working on Hasidus to become more whatever. And then slowly it discovers that Hasidus isn't helping me become the thing I want to become. And I have this other sense that it's not really about becoming, that I now have to like become more open with to and more accepting. And that is that requires a whole lifestyle. That requires a whole culture to maintain. You can't just like, you know, do that as a side project. It's like, one of the things that I've noticed um, contrasting me living in a community where there's lots of little kids and my siblings, specifically my brother who lives in a community where there are not lots of little kids, is how, how much having a child is a limiting factor um, when you don't have a society built around having little kids. This is where I live, there's lots of parks. Like, everybody has lots of kids, babysitting. It's like, it's, a, it's part of life. So it's like something, the whole thing is built around that. But when my brother lives, it's like, you know, you know, a few people have a kid, and then a few years later, a few people have a kid. And so everybody's kid is like their personal, individual project between them and their spouse and, you know, their grandparents, and that's it. And it, it changes, and it makes, it, it, it puts a kind of pressure and a burden. And so Chassidim always felt that if this is such a radical change in how we're going to live our lives, you can't just like make that your personal side project. I mean, maybe, maybe you're stuck in the middle of nowhere and you're the only person around that so you're going to have to do it on your own. But all things being equal, it needs to be done in a supportive community where you have a group of people who are doing that. So these things become part of the norm, part of the atmosphere. It's not all the pressure is on me because it is a big change. It is a big shift in how we approach life. In other words, the, in a certain level, the change from being uh, from approaching things as a chassid versus not a chassid is a bigger change than being religious versus not religious. Because what's the difference between being religious and not religious? Do you eat cheeseburgers or do you not eat cheeseburgers? Do you keep Shabbos? Do you not keep Shabbos? Um, you know, in other words, there's a list of behaviors you either do or don't do. 
but you can you can put those behaviors in whatever model of life you had. So let's say like before a person's religious, they want to live a meaningful life of family and whatever. Can you like put religiosity into that model? Sure. You could also take it out, right? But what Chassidus is saying, there's a whole different model means to be alive, what we're about, who we are, that that rubs against our most basic instinct as human beings, which is a desire to be something that we're proud of. And the idea that you're going to walk around with that, that kind of pressure to like live up to that on your own is a little ridiculous for most of us. And so Chassidus doesn't just like an idea, and Chassidus isn't just like a, a program. Chassidus ends up becoming a whole lifestyle and a whole culture. Now, because we're running one little thing about cultures, if you have a bunch of people in a whole culture, does that mean everything in the culture is always ideal? If a bunch of people get together, is there guaranteed going to be friction? Is there guaranteed going to be some things are taken the wrong way? Yeah. And so that's part of the, the other issue, is that if being involved in chassidus fully really involves the culture and the community and all that, it's not just a bunch of ideas you can implement on the side, I don't know if it's a personal project, then that means also a willingness to, you know, um, deal with some of the stuff that's maybe not the most you know, not really so positive, and theoretically it would be nice to get rid of, but the way it is. To give you an example, just not from Chassidus, just in a general thing. Um, one of the things that men have to do is daven with a minion, a quorum of ten men. So someone once asked, uh, a, a non-religious woman, uh, once asked an Orthodox rabbi, she wanted to make like a woman's minion. She's like, how do you get the minion to work? He said, well, what's the problem? I was like, you know, this one wants it too fast, this one's too slow, and this one this, and too much singing, not enough singing. Like, everybody's got their issues, right? He says, well, you've got ten people that want to be there? She says, yeah. Well, well, that's your problem. A minion is made of ten men who'd rather not be there. <laughs> that's what makes a minion work. Because you never find, like, if you get ten people together, like, it's never going to be at everyone's pace, right? And so now you've got to say, like, you can either, like, do the mitzvah of Davin with the minion and put up with the fact that it's too fast, too slow, he's too loud, he's too much singing, not enough singing, whatever it is, or you just have to forego the minion. You can't have the minion that's to your liking. It doesn't exist. And that's kind of the, the education the Jewish man gets, is that davening with the minion means doing it because you have to, because of your liking. Yeah, you might find one more to your liking, but there'll always be that one guy. Right? And so you can't get this, this group of people along with this whole ideal thing. It doesn't work. And if you broaden that out, you get a bunch of people together, you're always going to have issues and problems and tag-alongs and things. And so what ends up happening is that for, to take chassidus for what it really is requires a person to, to, to think very deeply about what kind of life they really want to live and what kind of people they want to be associated with and what kind of things they're willing to put up with even though they're really not so pleasant, not so positive. Now, why am I saying all of this in the first class? Shouldn't I give you something that's more uplifting to end the class with? And the answer is that um, you're all mature adults, right? And so whatever brought you here, I think it's important that everybody realize that everything is not rosy and that life is full of serious choices. And chassidus has a lot of depth and a lot of richness and a lot of beauty, but it's not free. It's not costless. And as the Mishnah says, lefum tzara agar, according to the pain is the gain. It doesn't say no pain, no gain. It says according to the pain is the gain, which means, do you want more gain? You have to be willing to put it with more pain. 
pain doesn't mean it has to be like like physically painful. It means there's discomfort. Confronting the fact that this is challenging us on a core level, dealing with the idea of having someone helping mediate my relationship with God, becoming part of a culture where maybe I don't like everything in it. And the degree to which we're willing to deal with those things and work through those things, the degree to which what Chassidus offers really can become part of us, and the degree to not is the degree which, you know, we can be observers and admirers of it. And that's a personal choice. I'm not going to make that for anybody. Yeah? So the, you just said um, how people can be admirers of it. So is that when people like will say that they're not Chabad, but they admire Chassidus? Right. Yeah. yeah. And, like, and I'm, I'm going to I'm not going to pass judgment on it because I'm not in anybody's situation. But I do think that it's important that nobody fool themselves, right? It's like if you don't get to be uh, you don't get to be an Olympic athlete because you admire Olympic athletes and watch them and, and imitate their training videos, right? It, 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 like, you have to be honest with yourself. Like I'm not saying you can't that can inspire you to be a little healthier and can't a good thing, but you can't expect that you know you get the results without the effort and the cost. And Chassidus has a tremendous beauty and a tremendous depth that's very, very rich and to take people places beyond their wildest dreams and relationship with God. But it has all of these built-in tensions. And each one of us, myself included, often will say, you know, I'm only willing to put this much effort. I'm only willing to put up with this much. I'm only willing to go this far out of my comfort zone for it. But we have to realize that's a choice we make. And by the way, you're not bound to that choice. You can make the choice at one point and you can choose more or less later, right? But we shouldn't think that it's like a free lunch. Um, because then we'll end up being disappointed. We'll feel like, you know, we were promised this rosy picture of, you know, you're going to stand in front of God and, oh, and it just doesn't happen. Yeah? What exactly are the tensions besides like in, being in a community? And- so there's, there's three that I mentioned in the class, which is the tension between our desire to be something and having this completely open, vulnerable, surrendering relationship with God. That's a tension. The idea of having a direct connection with God versus having it mediated and related to a tzaddik. Those, again, I've, I've given some sense of how you how you deal with those tensions, but there's still tensions because people deal with them to various degrees. And the, they have the, the need for community. And those are three. There's more, but those are, the, I think, three very big and obvious ones. So, seeing as all, you're all adults. Little children, you can't tell them these kinds of things because they don't have the maturity, but they're adults, so I can't. All right. Any questions? Or I can do it. <laughs> yes. So back to the thing of like being seen. Is that like on a, just a very practical level? Is that something that like a lot of Ah, so yes, um, that's the overt reason why they're ever the dollars, and that's also the overt reason why people all over from all walks of life would stand in the line for hours. And if you watch the dollars, it's really weird. And then you watch the videos of dollars. Mm-hmm. I don't mean the ones where they share where the Rebbe has like a five minute or two minute conversation with the person. I mean like the whole dollars. Because mm-hmm. the way dollars was like this, okay. So you have the person. So imagine like the Rebbe standing here with the person. And the person's like, so they push away. They're yeah. like, I, like they, they're glued to like wanting to. The Rebbe looks at them and they, they, they don't want to leave. And they're literally being pushed out. And then people like line up around again. Now, did everybody have the same experience, the same intensity? No. But, um, you know, but like, it, you know, it goes back to the thing. But, but that's ostensibly one of the key reasons why the Rebbe made dollars. Is that something that we are lesser for in today's generation? Um, I'll put it to you like this. There's a rule, um, which is that, well, there's a concept that, that from the time the temple is destroyed, God only resides in the study hall, in the Torah. So there's two ways of looking at that. One is that, well, we lost the temple, and so the next best thing is study, 
Torah. Right? And there's another way of looking at it is that what we access the temple in one way, we still have the same access to in a different way through study. You can look at it two ways. In other words, and the answer is that there's both. There's a kind of quality of experience that we don't have without the temple. But whatever on the core level of that the temple could do for our relationship with God is not we have zero, we, we can get out of that, it's just going to be qualitatively, experientially very different. And so in a similar sense, um, that's for sure the case, that the, the Chabad idea that the Rebbe can package that experience into a teaching that you can then struggle to understand and implement in your life and then discover that you've, you've ingested something that you didn't necessarily intend to ingest um, can get you the same place that being seen like by the dollars or things could get you to, but it will be a very different kind of an experience. So if you want the experience, we're missing something. If you want to get to what the experience is about, then we're not missing anything. And both are true.